Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's recovery, sort of. I'm Jason, a guy who doesn't. Yeah, no, I totally isolate, actually. <laughs> and I'm Billy. I'm a person in long-term recovery. And I'm Jenny. I'm also a person in long-term recovery. And we're going to talk about isolation, if you hadn't figured that one out yet. Uh, we did have a little bit of recap. So we had a comment on our Adult Children of Alcoholics YouTube, which this one caught me off guard. It says, this program makes us more Christ-like through all our hardships. The roots of AA is an evangelical Protestant movement via Oxford group. I'm not arguing that that's the roots of AA. I'm not <laughs> sure what it has to do with adult children of alcoholics. Is the program, is the 12-step model to make us more Christ-like? I think if you look at spiritual living in general, at least this has always been my opinion, religions typically are based in spiritual living or spiritual principles. That's why this God concept is, seems very similar amongst religions of different, you know, all different religions. Where it starts to get weird or different is with the ritualism around all that spirituality. That was a good summary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's one of those things. So, like, Christ was a good dude and we're trying to be good people so to say it makes us more Christ-like in that sense is okay I'll buy that but I I don't know whenever I feel like when people say this is to make you more Christ-like they're actually saying something about religion involved in it and that's not necessarily what I think 12 steps is even though I see a lot of people online argue that that's exactly what they've encountered is people telling them they can't really have their own God and it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that as well. I mean, I don't agree, but yes, I've heard people say those things. I guess it all depends on where you're going to meetings at, but it, it kind of shocks me how often I see people like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I was told in meetings everywhere in my area. And I'm like, wow. Oh yeah, that's, that's I haven't <laughs> encountered it like that. Right, right. Me neither. Um, so anyway. Uh, thank you for your comment and for listening. Hopefully you listened before you commented. Um, uh, you know, always, if you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and, uh, you know, fair warning. If you go to Instagram or Facebook, it's, it's, you know, not so nice drug memes, <laughs> uh, you know, but if you're into that, feel free to check us out there. Uh, you can go to our website, recovery it's sort not of very Christ-like. <laughs> no. The memes are not Christ-like whatsoever, uh, unless Christ had a great sense of humor. Um, and you can, recoverysortof.com, you can find us there. For, you know, if you enjoy this and you feel like it's worth a cup of coffee, you can go on our website and donate to us, which goes back to help the community, which leads into a new thing that some of our donated funds have done, which was that uh, a lady had moved into a recovery house and didn't have any money or food stamps, and we were able to provide 
a bunch of food for her through the funding. So we, all of us, listeners included, and she was really grateful. So that's pretty fantastic. We also had a couple of requests for topics. Um, We just did harm reduction, which came out today, which is awesome. But somebody else wanted to hear about marriage and recovery as a topic, specifically when both partners are recovering in the same space. And I was like, oh, we got to have Billy and Jen on here? Is that that how that works? I I don't know. But that's uh, something we will evaluate in the near future. We also had someone who said they wanted to hear about sexaholics. Um, So I would point them to episode 67 and episode 69, conveniently. Uh, They were both about sex addiction in some way, shape, or form. And then someone else said they wanted to hear about sponsorship. And I would point them to episode 88, changing sponsors. And then episode 39, we did an episode on sponsorship. But I I thought, you know, I don't know, we're at like 130 now or something like that. So maybe we could reevaluate sponsorship. Maybe we've learned or grown. I don't know what the hell that episode says. Yeah, or also if people have... I would say a little more specific questions. I mean, it's hard to cover the whole subject of sponsorship in an hour. I mean, well, I mean, it's not hard to cover what they're supposed to do. That's easy. But Uh then the, the nuancey things, it's a little harder to get into. Like I said, we did the changing sponsor. So that was a little more guided conversation. Well, and, and you know, I just saw an argument on Facebook the other day about the sponsorship book that they have in, in Narcotics Anonymous. And they were like, why does everybody hate this? And the whole point that many people came to was people wanted a step-by-step guide about how to sponsor, how to be a sponsor, the rights, the wrongs, the black and the white. And that book is just a guide of a bunch of people's experience that basically says, oh, hey, I did this and it was right. And then somebody else comes along and says, hey, I did the opposite and that was right. And they didn't like that. Yeah. What do they want? Like a list, like a checklist? Yes. Well, my criticisms of it weren't as much that as the way it was written. It wasn't written like a book. It's sectioned out with all these little uh different quotes thrown in. It's just written in a weird way. It's not written in a way that you feel like, oh, this is a book that I can read like chapter one. It's sectioned out weird and cut up into little tidbits of it's almost like a book that, what do they call it? It's like a coffee table book or a hmm. toilet book or whatever you could, you know, <laughs> a book that you sit there and you pick up and you read a few, you know, things of it and then you sit it down and walk away. Aren't that was my toilet Christmas. books. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we can come up with a, another facet of sponsorship to cover then. Maybe that's what we'll do. We'll narrow it down for them and talk about something in the near future. But we can definitely tell you how to sponsor people. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Tell them what to do. No, uh, that's definitely not how you do it. But anyway, that's the the recap. I have Jenny lead Hi. us into isolation. <laughs> wow, that that sounds like it's from a prayer. Let's go, guys. Yeah, lead us into isolation and deliver us from evil. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I wanted to talk about isolation um, because in in my history, you know, with drinking and then coming to recovery and now being recovered for a couple of years, like my relationship to isolation has changed. Um, So I thought it'd be a good topic. Towards the end of my drinking, 2012, isolation, you know, I was isolating. I didn't know it was called isolating. All I knew was I was drinking a ton and I was scared to go out because I was ashamed and I was afraid I was going to get like drinking and driving accident. Um, 
so coming to recovery, they're like, okay, you know, like one of the first hard and fast rules in AA was like, don't isolate. And, and I realized what isolation was. And I admit like in that first year, yeah, I was, I was scared to isolate. I was, I was scared to be alone, I should say. So I was scared that I would like accidentally drink something. Um, <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but like, um, it, does. it really does. Well, I had this, like, I was, I was working, still working back then. And, um, there was like this one stretch of road I had to go for work and it had all these liquor stores. Every one I had stopped at at some point in time. And I, w- I was scared that like I would accidentally pull into one of these liquor stores and buy something like so um, like I, w- I would just kind of like white knuckle down this like section of road. Like <laughs> how'd you get in the parking lot? There's ice on the road and the car slipped and just <laughs> well, I just right like, I was afraid I'd lose my mind. Plus, like in early recovery, like, oh, you can't trust yourself. They were always kind of preaching that like you can't trust that alcoholic brain, you know. So I was like scared to be alone. And that that eased up. And then I had to take um, I went to a conference uh related to down syndrome and um i was so scared to be alone in the hotel like i'd accidentally go down to the hotel bar you know bar yeah and um uh there wasn't any alcohol in the room thank god um but like i i was you looked (laughs) i searched i looked under the beds and the closets (laughs) nobody left anything um so i guess i was like six months sober then and um i remember calling people from my home group like every day just like checking in you know because i was scared to isolate they did give me this advice uh which was you're never really alone because when you know if you're physically alone that's when you're with your higher power and i thought that was like a oh that was like a nice magical mystical way to think about things and it totally worked for me in early recovery i wouldn't say that's how i do things now yeah now you got a little buddha in you all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but um so that fear of isolation faded in time like i don't know exactly when it left me and now i'm at the point where like i want to be alone like and i don't think that's necessarily unhealthy like being like if i had the ultimate vacation right now i would go by myself somewhere and just be alone relaxed you know with my thoughts doing what i want to do i don't know if people in 12 steps would still (laughs) (laughs) um Um, there's a little, there's a Buddha butt plug. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know what I was looking at. You have a little Buddha in you at all times. Sorry. Uh, I shouldn't that's have a phone not, we That's not what saved me from drinking. <laughs> um, yeah. So right now isolation seems like a dreamy vacation. So anyway, I wanted to bring isolation as a topic because it's changed so much from when I was drinking to when I was not drinking. And now I'm still not drinking, you know, and I'm a person in long-term recovery i i want isolation but not so i can be nuts or i don't know i think maybe people in 12 steps might be like that's dangerous you know but i'm i've been sober nine years now like is that really dangerous you know um so i don't know what do you guys think what what's your history with isolation and what do you think about think about it now longer you stay clean the closer you get to relapse jenny (laughs) 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 sounds like somebody (laughs) Somebody in a 12-step program would tell me, uh, or you. Yeah, that's uh, – no, I agree. I mean, I don't know if they have this in AA. We we always had the an addict alone is in bad company. And then five minutes later, somebody else will share that, you know, when you're alone, you're never alone because you're with your higher power. So I guess your higher power is bad company. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think of isolation as being alone. Like those are two different things to me. Oh, that's a good so, point. I can be alone, like I like to do things independently or by myself, like say go on a hike or a nature walk. But if I still feel like emotionally connected with 
my wife or with, you know, my sponsor or with other people in my recovery network, you know, I'm not isolated. To me, the idea of isolation means I'm like sitting alone by myself, uh, totally dependent on my thoughts and and my me solving all my own problems like that idea that we have behind our self-centeredness. Like when I isolate, I'm stuck with me alone, solving all my problems, fixing all my issues, dealing with my life. And that's a bad place for me to be, you know, because that old adage, like, like you said, an addict alone is in bad company. For me, that applies to like when I have problems or issues going on in my life or when I have decisions to make, like I need to include other people in that stuff. But doing things by myself or alone doesn't necessarily mean I'm isolating. I like that take. Yeah, because it's not about being physically alone. It's it's about how you feel. Are you feeling lonely? You know, because you can feel lonely in a crowd, you know, like there's that you know, that, that, oh, that person in the city surrounded by people, but they feel so alone, you know? We've been doing this two and a half years, Billy. You got to save the solution for like 50 minutes in, oh. not 12 <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> well, I first heard that concept from a guy that was a friend of mine, still is, that, you know, was in recovery a long time. I think at the time I met him, he had five or six years clean. He was a little bit older and he had never been married or really in a serious long-term relationship. And he had talked about struggling with that for a long time, feeling like he needed this other person to complete himself, feeling like he needed, you know, some partner in life. And then realizing that like you could still be alone and not be alone. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, you know, we have this concept, we say isolation, but really there's the feeling of being alone, you can have that in a crowded room. Like that's one of the worst things in the world to me is like, it's one thing to feel alone when I am alone, but to feel alone when I'm supposedly not, that's even worse. It's like, Jesus, here I am with either a, a large you know, group of people or even, you know, if your relationship or your marriage doesn't feel very connected, it's like, fuck, here I am with the person I'm supposed to be connected to. And I still feel all by myself. I'd rather feel alone being alone than feel alone when I'm not supposed to feel alone. Like that feels even worse for me. Um, so I, I don't know. I think isolation for me is more of a, a, you know, nervous system or bodily mood state than it is necessarily a physical condition. Cause I can, you know, we talk about this in, in therapy, like when you feel off and disconnected from the world, that's isolation. But when you feel like you're in a really connected, safe body orientation, that's solitude, right? Like that's a whole different thing. It's like, oh, I spend my time solitude and, you know, recharge and maybe I read a book with myself or get in a hot tub or I, you know, practice meditation. But it's a whole different thing to, to feel alone. And I think that's maybe more of what we're going for, I, I guess, early in recovery and, and you know, people in meetings are, are trying to espouse the idea that when you just get here, you might not have that connection yet or, or the tools to stay connected when you're not actually physically with people. And that can put you in that isolation, like bodily or mind state. And that's dangerous, I would say. But I, I don't know that actually physically being alone is a bad thing. Yeah. And I think early in recovery, especially, it takes time. And even now I still struggle with it of 
learning the concepts of like intimacy and vulnerability and and those are core concepts to building the connections with people you know what i mean like you can't really build deep intimate connections unless you're good at listening to other people's problems and sharing your problems you know that's all part of building relationships without those things then i am isolated even in a room full of people and i've had those issues you know in my marriage and in my life with lots of time clean in the same environment that i'm in now with three kids and a wife and a full-time job still feeling alone and isolated and you know i gotta figure everything out on my own i gotta do this all by myself nobody wants to help me nobody's gonna do things for me so like where do you think that came from like even though you were in a marriage and this was in like sobriety or clean clean time so i wonder where how did you slip into that isolation for me i think it's a feeling that isn't always based in fact. Maybe it is based in fact, but like, so Johan Hari, this guy wrote a book and um, he's got a sort of saying in there, the opposite of addiction is connection. It's a, yeah, yeah. I forget, but it's a YouTube thing. I think you can look it, it like up. It's a TED it's, talk yeah, or something. It's a, yeah, TED talk. That was it. It was a TED talk. <laughs> it wasn't a book. He wrote other books, but <laughs> it's the opposite of addiction is connection. And I think that is the core of, of my, you know, seeking self-destructive things in my life to solve problems. Like that's my self-centeredness. Um, I could kind of say where that, I think that comes from for me, but I think it's different for other people. Like I was abused as a kid. So when I grew up later in life, I learned, well, I can't trust anyone for anything. It's totally relying on me to solve all my problems and to take care of myself and protect myself. And no one else is going to ever look out for me or help me. Um, they talk about that in one of the NA pamphlets, you know, it's like we never outgrow the self-centeredness of the child thinking that we can do everything for ourselves all the time and that we don't need other people. And that's just not the state of most human beings, the natural state of most human beings. Most people need, we need help from other people. We can't do everything on our own. I was, I was really curious of your take on how that happened to you. Um, Similar experience in, in recovery in the marriage with kids feeling totally disconnected and alone myself. And, and I, I know the way I look at that now, which has evolved over time. Um, you know, Gabor Mate talks about it in, in the realm of hungry ghosts. He says that what we're learning through research is that it's not just the childhood i feel like we always look to the childhood for like this big experience that happened this this trauma this aces whatever it is but it's not just anything about like having shitty parents or any of that like what we know now is that it can happen during the pregnancy like before you're even on earth so to speak and in the first few years and if your parents are in stressful environments whether that be you know, there's just not enough money to get by and they worry about that, whether they're working two jobs to try to support you and, and can't be there as much as they want to, or whether they're in a unhealthy domestic situation, like any of these factors that cause stress on them change the way your brain forms. And that's during pregnancy and after. And so, you know, uh, the average human who gets the, the proper experience might have a, a, you know, we'll just make these numbers up a, a four inch you know, span in their brain where they have receptors for the chemicals that allow us to feel positive and for our reward system to work, right? 
And somebody who's born into a more stressful environment where the caregivers are stressed, theirs might be one inch. They're never going to have the potential to feel as good or for, you know, quote unquote, good deeds to feel as rewarding for them. And so it's like, it's not necessarily that we need to know these specific situations, but whatever it is, we grow into a, a human that can't feel the way the average human can feel, I guess, in, in a good sense. And is, so, I mean, oh, go ahead. Is there even any average humans anymore? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You know, I yeah. mean, the studies were done in mice and, you know, I didn't have any humans like licking me for nurture. So I, <laughs> <laughs> thank God that might not be nurturing for humans. Um but the mice that got licked enough, they would be given the alcohol or cocaine, but then saw no need to continue to give it to themselves afterwards. And the mice that weren't nurtured enough, just constantly alcohol, cocaine, alcohol, cocaine, more, more, more. So it's like, uh, you know, when you don't have the ability to feel okay to begin with, you seek out ways to feel okay. I remember I was thinking about this yesterday for some reason, a buddy of mine, I grew up with him. He was funny. We used to love hanging out. I got into like weed and alcohol and getting high. We would still hang out. He never had any fucking interest in it. Just none. And I'm like, what? I always questioned it then. I'm like, how can you not want to? But I couldn't understand that he had an internal different feeling than I did, you know? But anyway, to lead that into my marriage and not feeling connected, that was just my understanding of the world. I just felt disconnected all the time. And so I can remember, you know, and this sounds pretty rough, but like, I was sitting in the bedroom in my house, the rest of my family, my wife and my kids are out there like playing, watching a movie, whatever they're doing. And I'm sitting there and we live by uh, the key bridge. And I was like, I should just go drive off of it. Like, why the fuck am I here? Right. And mm. I don't know, for me, it was a matter of, of, you know, not only practicing principles, not only, you know, finding some healing, but it was also a matter of getting that chemical balance internally for me in the right state. And once that chemical balance is okay, then I have the ability to feel safe. Now I have the ability to like, you know, have solitude and, and safe alone time and feel connected still. But I, I didn't feel connected before that. And so I, I don't know if other people struggle with that. And that's why I was curious what your take on what happened to your marriage to feel disconnected was, because I know we have slightly different takes on body physiology. Yeah, in my case, it's been a couple of different times that I could say in a couple different situations some I can kind of point out and some I think are just a natural like what I'll call like my natural state if if I have a natural state like I tend to be a person that wants to solve all my problems myself fix everything and then once I've figured everything out and got to the other side then I'll share it with you how I got through it what I did how successfully I overcame this challenge but I'm not a person that's really open to sharing my struggles typically like that's that's hard that takes courage which we'll talk about later but uh in so in my case as you know my wife and I are moving along and raising kids and we're making career choices in our 30s and she's uh in some situations at her work you know she was in a career situation employed at a major university where she worked for a horrible boss who 
treated her pretty terrible, and she was unhappy. I and, hope he listens to the show. Uh, oh, I, yeah, it was a woman. <laughs> oh, uh, fucker! She had approached you know them about you know the the upper whatever HR or whoever you approach about that kind of shit. Made complaints. Other people had made complaints about this same person. Nobody did anything. They said this person has tenure. Whatever. So she's like, I'm going to quit. And I said, how you can't quit. You have to stay because my values and her values in those situations are different. You know what I mean? My values are it's great money. Our kids can go to college for free. Like there's all this upside. Who cares if this person's an asshole? Fuck them. You know, it, it, like mm -hmm. I can go along and do my job and just let them do, you know, their bitching or whatever they, you know, like I don't. And maybe that's unhealthy on my part i'm not saying i'm the healthy one just but we tolerate just had that different value your soul and so just that little thing started to create some issues in our marriage and being able to say hey we really have different values in this situation i got to learn to honor your values and realize that you know you need to do what's right for you not necessarily what i think is right for you um led to a place where like Again, I go inward and then I'm like, well, I don't know if our values are the same. I don't know if we're going in the same direction in our life. What about raising our kids? Are we going to raise our kids with the same kind of values? She's got some fucked up values over there. You know, and it was just all internal dialogue going on in my head without conversation or sharing about what's some pretty major life stuff. And so that slowly leads to, you know what I mean? Well, I can't really count on you as a person you know, that I depend on for anything, I'll just figure it all out on my own and make my own decisions. How did you come out of that? Did you like talk to somebody? Uh, well, I think in our case, and this has happened a few times. I mean, you get to a place where it's like, all right, well, do I want to stay in this miserable? Like we got to do something about this miserable situation, whether that's end this marriage, whether this, you know, go to counseling, do something different, talk about what's going on. And so eventually we just decided to talk about what was going on and try to work through it. But yeah, I think uh, in one sense, I think my wife and I are both people that aren't like, I'm not going to just sit in a miserable, unhappy situation for too awful long before I'm like, eh, I'm going to do something different now. I don't know what that is, but I'm not going to keep fucking doing this. <laughs> That's so fascinating because you were just telling her to stay in that miserable situation yeah. at college. <laughs> <laughs> and yet your solution was, I'm getting out of this miserable situation. <laughs> That's hilarious. I would love to do an experiment where you take medicine for two months. Yeah. I would be curious. I, I mean, maybe it doesn't work and it'd be cool to learn that, but I would just be fascinated. Like, hmm. I, well, I, I just, I wonder what for, like, what am I, t am I taking an antidepressant well, or you, a you, mood? Uh, self-report anxiety. Yeah, right? I do have some anxiety. And most of the SSRI class of antidepressants are also anti-anxiety. Hmm. So it just be, it would be interesting. I feel like there's not a whole lot of side effects to them. I'd be fascinating. Like what happens? I know. Yeah. To me, it's all like experiment. Like experiment Jason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm all for yeah. it. Uh, I know it's probably not good, but yeah. Um, so I, you know, going back to this idea of like body chemistry being off, I think when we're telling the new individual in recovery to not isolate, there's probably a lot of point to that, right? I mean, when you stop using drugs and stop, your body is not producing the right chemicals right away. And even when it starts to, 
I'm sure, I mean, I don't have the research on this, but I'm sure there's fluctuations, right? We talk about like large mood swings and everything. I don't know if you remember those early in mm-hmm. recovery, but I definitely did. Like I'd be feeling great and then, you know, I go home and I'm feeling miserable and hate myself again. And it's like, where does that come from? But maybe that is the fact that my body is not producing the things it needs to produce regularly and scheduled and, and evenly. And maybe over time there is some like, just settling in of that. Even if it's not settling into the ideal chemical balance, at least it settles into a place where we get used to it and we know kind of how to deal with ourselves. So I imagine over time in recovery for everyone, there's a a settling in of the ability to be alone. But maybe early on, that is probably a pretty good damn idea. Like, hey, don't don't isolate. And I kind of think as an addict, like our feelings aren't necessarily totally unique as addicts like normal human beings i'm sure have times where they feel alone or isolated or whatever they just have healthier mechanisms for dealing with those things as an addict do they yeah well hopefully (laughs) healthy human beings i should say but you know they like I tend to think that everyone wakes up some days and just is like, man, fuck, I fucking hate my life. I hate my job. I hate my kids, you know, but they just sort of have different ways of managing this. Maybe I'm putting myself out there. I think that shit sometimes. (laughs) So here's a weird one. Last Sunday was my birthday. And we happy had, birthday! Thank you. Yeah. I had my whole family with me. We were going to the mall. We had to run a few errands. We were supposed to go out to eat. Fuck you, Cheesecake Factory, for your ninety-minute wait. By the way, mm. um, that hasn't changed. Yeah, God, I was like on a I, Sunday, but I was yeah. like, it's not lunch. It's not dinner. I'm going at the off time. Yeah, there's no fucking off time. Whatever. Anyway, um, but we're driving up there, and I just started to feel this this sadness, and I don't know if it was like. I'm going to miss these people later when we're not hanging out or, or, or what it was. It just felt like, man, this isn't going to last, even though this is good now. And, and I couldn't attribute it to anything. It just seemingly came out of nowhere. And my coping mechanism today was to just share that with everybody. Uh, guys, I'm just feeling a little sad right now, you know? And then when we got out of the car, a couple of them hugged me. And it was like, it didn't necessarily go away right away, but that's a whole lot different than what it would have been years ago when I would have, you know, probably isolated and been miserable and, and, and isolated to the point where I would probably be miserable enough to make everybody want to be the fuck away from me. Like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like no one wants to be around me. And then I make everybody not want to be around me. You're miserable. Right. (laughs) Oh yeah. I think isolating does snowball. Like, you know, uh, like, you know, the, the more I, the more I isolated, the more I drank, which made me want to, made me more ashamed, which made me isolate more, which made me want to drink. Yeah. And, and some of that, you know, even just talking about it with our significant others or a sponsor or a friend can help us look at it a little more versus just going back, reverting, reverting back to that inner monologue that I said, because that inner monologue in my head is never that healthy. <laughs> right. It usually seems, you know, real negative and it perpetuates that sort of stuff. I, yeah, I can. When you when you shared your your experience with that, I can totally relate to that. Like, I'll, I'll get stuck in my head, and it'll just start pinging back and forth, like just getting worse. And that's why I asked how you came out of it, because somehow, like, somebody has to like kind of knock on my head, like, "Hello, hello," you know, like just pull me out of that. Well, and even in that situation, like the, the whys and the hows of how we ended up there aren't totally 
obvious in the moment. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it takes some work and being willing to look at some of that stuff. Like, all right, well, how did we get here and what kind of happened? And this has been a, you know, a couple of year process to end up at this spot. It's not like we just woke up one day a and we're like, of years you, know, you yeah. know, so it's taken time to to isolate to a point and then it's like well i haven't really been doing step work and i haven't really been talking to my sponsor and my home group is this place where i just go to help all those people get better i'm not going there sharing any of my shit there anymore i'm fixing everybody else because i'm good you know and those things perpetuate to this place of isolation and loneliness and this isn't like isolation isn't just for addicts and alcoholics i mean I think it's a mental health thing in general. I yeah. I mean, I see headlines about the generation after us being feeling more isolated than ever. And I'm sure like it it plays into like how we are connected these days through more like social media than in person. And um but yeah, I hear the generation after us is even more kind of sad and lonely than we are. <laughs> Which plays into a yeah. whole reason I think addiction and violent crime and all these things are where they are in our society me personally believe we're social creatures if you look back over history mm-hmm. we lived in tribes we took care of each other like it wasn't just one mom raised her kids and then like fuck everybody else's kids mm-hmm. like there was you know a group of people and a lot of times the older people in the community raised the younger kids while the younger you know males and females went out and did different tasks amongst the community and there were shared values and shared goals amongst the whole community and we just don't have that anymore at all or or most of us don't have that at all consumerism right this episode has been brought to you in part by voices of hope inc a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery family members and allies together Members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. Can I read this quote? I, this is, it ties into what you said. So I grabbed this off the internet. It's from Bright Life Recovery. So just like physical illness, isolation can be influenced by genetic predisposition with some individuals being inherently more susceptible to feelings of isolation and disconnection, which is like what you were saying, Jason. And then also like a disease, isolation can spread through communities, especially those in which crime and poverty are prevalent. In these contexts, distrust can be rampant with crime, poverty, and drug use leading to community-wide fear and despair, which is kind of like what you were alluding to. Um, I thought that was a really interesting perspective on isolation. And for me, that's part of the reason I never did well with Zoom meetings was because I've looked at like now I would say in my recovery, I don't necessarily still go to meetings because I'm waiting to hear some new enlightening information that's going to change my life. Although I try to be open to that. I just don't think that's going to happen. I go because of the connection that I feel to the people in the room, because of the community that I feel when I'm physically there. And I don't get that from social media stuff. You know, this is why I stopped doing social media why I never felt that connection 
in Zoom meetings, so I never really participated in them very much. It's weird with the younger generation, and, and I don't say this in a judgy way because I have done it, but they'll all hang out by themselves in their own house participating in this social media, and it's like a form of connection almost to some extent, and yet then they all get together and they still do the social media instead of being present with each other, <laughs> which is fascinating. And like I do this in my house sometimes, right? So if I go out, if, if us three, I mean, we come here, I don't really get on my phone like that, but if we went out to dinner... I won't fucking touch my phone while we're at dinner. Like, I'm there. I'm here for the dinner. I'm here to converse. But then I go sit in my house with people and, like, straight on my phone. Like, I don't <laughs> think nothing. Of, and I'm like, that's... I've been trying to move away from that some, yeah. too, because I, I think there's something to that, that in-person technology use is disconnecting, as opposed to, like, it's one thing to participate with people while I'm away from them. But when I'm with them, I, I feel like I really need to be present with them. Well, you probably feel safe with your family too. She's so like, oh, I can relax and just kind of. Yeah, but the, I, I was, I'm not getting as much internally later out of sitting with them on my phone as I am when I actually participate and and I'm present. Yeah, but even that awareness. So I I do believe early in recovery we lack all that knowledge and information and recognizing like, hey, I'm feeling isolated and alone, like. That was my normal state of being through my whole entire using was to be isolated and alone. Like that was normal. Now, when I find myself there, I'm like, ooh, this is uncomfortable. Like I don't really like this, <laughs> you know, and it takes a while to build up some skills of like recognizing that. But then what do I do with that? What do you know, am I supposed to how do I get out of this? Well, why did we isolate when we were using? I mean, obviously, there is the shame aspect. I didn't want to go around the people that love me. I think, you know, there was a a common trope when I got um, in recovery of like not taking the main streets, but always walking down side streets and from from a city. So back alleys like I didn't want to be seen by anybody. I, I fucking looked terrible. I wasn't up to any good. But then I think there's even that third factor for me. It was like, I ain't sharing my shit. Like, that's for sure. <laughs> so I don't want to be around anybody that might ask for some of it because then I'll feel bad saying no. But I, I mean, is there other reasons for isolating when we're using? Well, in my case, at least most of my using was different than that. So when I used, I had a job. I wore a suit and tie to work and was clean cut and was still maintained a job and had friendships or, you know, whatever could be hmm. semblance of friendships. So it wasn't that physical isolate. It was always the isolation of like being alone and not really almost being inhuman. Like I don't share anything about myself or my vulnerabilities or my weaknesses, any sort of spiritual principles of like kindness or forgiveness or acceptance. Like those things are all just weaknesses that are, are going to like let people take advantage of you. And so I was like physically around people, but in a place where I didn't let anyone really get close or know who I actually was. I feel like I was isolated long before drugs personally like yeah, when i think I, back I to too. my childhood like yeah. i always had these thoughts and feelings that i thought were unacceptable to share with others right because they made me somehow less than everybody else or you know in my particular case the 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 story was like you're not manly enough you're not tough enough and so i was like well i can't tell the other kids <laughs> on the playground that shit right <laughs> even though they might have all felt it as well I couldn't share that to feel any more connected and I wasn't telling dad like that would have felt yucky. And so 
I basically just didn't tell anybody, which made me feel more and more alone over time. It was like, I have to keep hiding who I really am, because if anybody else knows that, they'll hate me the way I hate me, or they'll see me as not enough in the way I see me as not enough. And I feel like that that played more into my isolation than, than anything. That idea that people can't know the real me. I, I'm not good enough to be known. Yeah, and that's similar for me. I mean, that's the, the situations that got us there might be different, but the feeling was exactly the same. Like, I can't let anybody know really who I am, you know. Well, and I don't think quitting using takes that away. No, it doesn't. I was already there, so right. it's going to be there again when I'm in recovery. What were we going to say, Jenny? Oh, yeah, it was the same for me, too. Like, I remember, like, late grade school, like, starting to hide who I was because I was so sensitive to criticism. And we moved a lot, so I had I was always trying to make friends, trying to make friends. And uh, so I guess it was, like, maybe that's, like, where the perfectionism was born and, um, you know, just sensitivity to criticism. And I just started hiding away how weird I was. <laughs> and for me, though, that's where the step work came in. It's like when I really did a, a fourth step or fifth step actually with a sponsor and shared some of that stuff that I was like, I'm never talking about any of this with fucking anybody. And then I shared some of that and I wasn't immediately rejected or tossed off and I was valued as a human being still. And I realized, you know, weeks and months after that, like, hey, this is OK. Like, it's that wasn't as traumatizing as what I thought it was going to be in my head. And then getting into like a six and seven step of realizing like, yeah, I have some defects. There's some shit that's not right about me, but I have some assets too. There are some things about me that are good. Like I have these good qualities, you know, and I can be like, I can assimilate to regular human beings in that I have assets and I have defects and we all do and no one's perfect and those kind of concepts that again, when I'm telling myself that shit in my own head, it makes a lot of sense. But when I work through that with a sponsor and talk about some of that, it's like, yeah, we're all fucked up in some way or another. We really are all fucked up. <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, I definitely have a piece of, well, yeah, but what gave me the internal safe enough feeling to share those things, right? Like just trying to look at what might keep somebody else from being able to take that fourth step. You know, always before, like, oh, you're just not willing. Well, that's easy to say. But what could keep them from it? There's the internal piece, in my mind, at least. And even if we don't necessarily agree or believe in that, like, what if you don't find the safe feeling sponsor, right? Like, I, I mean, I feel like I was lucky enough, too. But what if that's not your situation and nobody in your small town feels like the right safe haven to share that kind of stuff with? So then, I mean, what? I don't know if I have an answer to that. So this goes back to what I worked through in a four-step was that it may not be my sponsor, and it may be different people that I share different parts of that with for different reasons. Maybe I go to a counselor and share about my sexual abuse or issues with a counselor. That doesn't necessarily – like my understanding of a fifth step wasn't that I picked one individual and then shared every intimate detail of everything that I ever did wrong with that person. Oh, my it, was, <laughs> it was the idea that, you know, I'm not supposed it says just another human being. So I'm not supposed to keep that stuff inside, locked inside. I need to find someone to talk to about that. That's going to give me some healthy perspective and healthy uh, way coping mechanisms for dealing with that stuff. So. 
My I brain mean, tries to make life a model of efficiency. So if I can do <laughs> that with be one, one person. person, that's way simpler than 10 people for 10 but, different things. And even that whole process built on, you know, faith and trust and just taking a risk of like, fuck, man, I'm doing these steps and the steps say to do this stuff next. And of course, like most of the steps in hindsight, I realized the benefits of it, but going into it. I'm only reading about the benefits of it. I'm reading that it's going to do all these things. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I'll do it and we'll see what happens. And then you do it. And most people, I wouldn't even say all, but I would say most people do get the benefits that they talk about from working their steps. There's a huge risk there though. Oh, that, for sure. Right. So like, okay, I come around, I don't feel tough enough. I get a, an old like biker tough ass dude to be my sponsor and then i know oh shit if i share this parts of my story that make me sound like what my head says is a sissy i could face the ultimate you know truth that this guy says i really am like that's fucking scary i've been hiding from that my whole life like that's that's a lot to walk through you know just uh, going back to something you said, Jenny, and this is my own growing up as a guy biased bullshit because I, I know it's not different for any type of human, right? But I'm like, when women say they had those same struggles that I had, my first thought is always like, with what? I'm like, guys worry about not being tough enough, that our dick's not big enough. Like, we have these concerns like what are women worried about like what are, like i i don't know that they're overweight or something like i what is there i i just feel like you guys don't have the social requirements but i i again i know that's bullshit but it it's just always so hard for me to fathom i'm like because i guess because i i like women i'm like oh, they're all great <laughs> right. they're wonderful right like all of them are cool yeah, right. I, I don't know i just it's so hard for me to identify what kind of struggles did women have with oh being well. enough Oh, okay. Well, you know, I think I, in my story, I brought up uh, like the grade school example. Um, and I guess, I guess, um, yeah, I definitely didn't think I was like pretty or um, I was a little overweight and I was weird. I had a weird sense of humor. I used to like write weird stories and I, I really liked, so I was really into Star Wars and it wasn't as popular as it was then. That was not cool. <laughs> like, And um. I don't know. I guess the way I, I mean, we're talking about grade school. So like mm -hmm. eight, nine, the way I played was different. Like when I lived in South Jersey, we, you know, I used to play with kids on the playground. We used to like play Star Wars or Buck Rogers. Go ahead, laugh. It's full. Um, but like when I went to Buck New York, Rogers. when I went to New York, nobody wanted to play like that. And I'll, I was weird. I was a weird mm -hmm. kid, you know, and then, then that, you know, like, well, she's the weird kid and I don't, you know, so it just, huh. you know, like, um, Around then, too, my dad was, like, kind of, like, disappearing. So, I guess there's that, like, rejection. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what? Why doesn't he want – you know, it's all about me. Like, why doesn't he want to be with me? I had no concept that it was him and my mom and alcohol and, you know. But as a kid, you think it's you. So You have to, actually. And there's yeah. something – Protective feature. <laughs> to go back to, like, what you said earlier, I, I can look back over the story of my life and make connections and rationalizations as to why I think I felt that way. But I don't know. Maybe it was something that happened, you know, what do they call that, in vitro or whatever, you know, before I was <laughs> even born. Maybe those <laughs> concepts were there, no matter what fucking life experience I had, because everyone at some point or another is going to have a life experience where they feel a little weird or different or they have a different take on things or they fucking wore the wrong outfit to the wrong, you know, like we're all going to have those. That's a human experience. 
And so, you know, maybe we are some way born with some of that. Well, and and not to, I don't want to take us back to the, I feel like we're going to have this argument next episode, so I don't want to have it now. Um, but that's where I come from, or at least where I'm trying to come from. You know, I don't necessarily know that it's genetics. I think it's epigenetics, right? I think it's these situations that our genetics are put into, like you said, in utero or, or beyond where people are physically developing different, right? So maybe you have when you're born or, or into your adult life, at least you've grown this 50% capability, let's say, and that's what allowed you at that fourth step period to say, you know what, I, I can push through this. But maybe there's other people who are born with 35% or 25% capability in that whatever area it is, right? This shit that we can't even really study or measure yet. And when they get there, they truly physically can't make that choice, right? That's not even an option on their menu. Their menu is like, uh, fuck it, go back to using or punch somebody in the face to feel tougher or something, right? Like that's the only two options that like, I just don't want to spend the rest of my life thinking people aren't doing something that they can't do. And because I don't really think we completely understand all this yet, I want to err on that side and just assume when people don't, they can't. And what can I do to try to help them be able to can? That's all. And I feel like we kind of go back and forth with that sometimes. I think we did it with willingness. Well, I think we agree with that part. I think the difference is what do you like? What do you do? Do you assume people need a medication or a crutch or something to help? And I hate to use the word crutch. That's yeah. That's, <laughs> do they need some sort of help or assistance or, you know, whatever? Or do you say, all right, well, let's see you try or, or let's see what happens when we you know, take all these things away and just because I do think everyone's different and I don't think everyone's going to find an answer to all their problems by just doing 12 steps. Like that's not realistic. Well, I'm not <laughs> even, yeah, I'm not even, you know, criticizing 12 steps in this idea. Just that I think we had that conversation in the willingness episode of like, you think there's a point where it comes to where people just need to make this certain decision or about whatever it is. And I'm just not sure that that's possible. Like, I, I really just don't know. And so I I don't know. I feel good coming from that place. One, I believe it. But two, I feel like it just helps me be a person that's like, I wish I had solutions. I have no idea how we help you. But let's let's do body experiments and fucking find out, right? <laughs> maybe the medicine works. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe we drop you off a fucking one-story roof and see what happens. Like, I, I have no fucking clue, right? Like, well, there's a whole lot of... I don't know if I'd use the word research. There's a whole lot of, God, I don't even know if I could say evidence, but like, <laughs> because there's motivational speakers and motivational posters and all this motivational shit that is there for some reason to try to get people to push through difficult things and do things that they don't want to do. Like that's the whole, <laughs> that's our toxic positive society. <laughs> yeah. But is it, I mean, if it didn't work, wouldn't it go away? I mean, no, because we want to keep as long as we keep enforcing that idea, we don't have to accept people that aren't up to our standards. I don't think one means the other. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I can be motivated to make positive changes in my life without judging other people. 
Just because I decide to diet or exercise or all that doesn't mean I got to put down people that don't. You get privilege from that. What do you mean? I mean, your life is way better and you're looked at much nicer than other people, whether well, you true. judge them or not. Right. So, yeah, that why all the people who gain privilege from this idea and concept that people just need to suck it up and push through and motivate themselves, they're on the other side of it. Like they have the the more than 50 percent capability of whatever that thing is. So it's easy for them to say. Yeah, but most of them had to start from somewhere. Like when you look at people that were drastically overweight or were addicts or, you know, were any of these really negative things. And now they're on the other side and they're telling you their experience of how they did it and what helped them and what motivated them. Like that's all like. I don't know. Maybe you don't feel like it's true, but I feel like that's true evidence that that works for some people, that that is what some people need. The story, the brain is a story maker to make meaning of life, which is a beautiful thing, but it makes up the story after the fact. Yeah. And right. it's not necessarily based on reality. Right. The stories I make up about, uh, and this is what fucking hilariously entertains me all the time. All the stories my brain makes up about why I do things the way I do them make me look really really good <laughs> every last one of them i'm like oh yeah i uh you know the reason i schedule things out and i'm always on time is just because that's the kind of person i am right well it could also be because i'm fucking anxious as fuck and it means that i'm a terrible person if i'm not on time or something right like there's a whole lot of other stories that could be possible but i ignore them and create the one that makes me sound like a, a fucking god or something which is why i laugh at them now and i think all stories that we make up are I don't think they're bullshit necessarily, but I don't put a whole lot of stock into them. So like, yeah, that person can say, oh, yeah, it's because I got motivated and I really cared about my health and all this. Right. And it could have been that like some dude rejected them in a bar and it fucking hurt their feelings. And, you know, that was their low point that they needed to do something like it. Yeah. But there could be some truth to like, hey, if I don't want to be late for shit, I leave 10 minutes earlier. Like there's there could a be, but basic truth to that. But what about the <laughs> people know? who can't? <laughs> Who just can't. That's that's the people I'm trying to champion for. Like, it doesn't make me better because I do. No, I don't think it makes anyone better. Right. right. But we can agree on that. But the most of the world doesn't. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so the judgment and the criticism and, like, bashing people part that sucks. All the people <laughs> who were on the good end of it are always going to say it's something they did to get there. And right. I'm just not so sure about that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I I mean... I don't know. Where do you take? Yeah, there's a level of where do you have to accept personal responsibility, you know, and, and I don't know where that is. But what if you can't? What is your responsibility if you can't? But I think there's there's a limited number of people that can't. I don't think I that anyone that's not, it's because they can't. Like, I, I don't think that I could not have gotten clean any other time in my life. I think I made different choices for different reasons. And decided that the work wasn't worth the reward. And so I went back to using like that's. Uh, huh. Yeah, I just see it totally different. <laughs> <laughs> see it totally different. And that as we get to these opportunities or choices in our life, you know, it's just like the isolation. Take it back to the isolation. Like nowadays when I find myself isolating or alone, there's a feeling, there's a thing that comes up in me that I'm like, oh, I can see what this is. This is isolation. Now, what am I going to do with this? Am I just going to stay in it 
or do I take action that I know in the past has worked to help get me out of it? And so I'm going to take that action or maybe I don't. Maybe I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to stay here. Right. But you have no clue what it would feel like to find yourself in that position, see yourself isolating and then look at your menu options and say, oh, the only one is just fucking stay here. Okay. So you assume that everyone has the other option of saying, you, you, you take it as a personal victory, as in something you did to say, I can do these other things. I can make that choice and go be better and be around people and stop isolating. Oh, well, I think helping, like, I think there's, we need to help people get there. Like, that's the whole point of all the you know, helping people in recovery and, well, but that's and trying not the to give them these other tools. You're, talking about. you're saying when you get to that point, you're looking up at these two options and I'm saying, what if the other person doesn't have that option? What if they look up at their menu and that shit's not even on there or, or they go to order it and the, the chef's like, yeah, we're out of 86. The, the going back to talking to people that's not available. <laughs> we don't have it. Well, there's always an option to go seek more information I mean, is there it, if i if i give myself the out that my only solution to every problem is to do nothing and sit here until i want to do something different that's bullshit that is then i will do nothing it's my not, inf- <laughs> like i gain insight into how to do things better when i'm like fuck i don't have the answers i don't know what to do here i need to go ask people that have done it or seek other information from someone therapist counselor church 12 steps another person who's done it like you know if all i ever do is isolate and figure out that i can only do what i can do based on what i feel like doing then i'll never do anything right we're gonna have to have this conversation (laughs) next episode uh so back to isolation so interestingly uh i don't know if all 12-step fellowships or any more of them have this kind of literature but narcotics anonymous has the loner staying clean in isolation it's a pamphlet it is completely fucking useless in 2022 it is (laughs) It talks about joining a loner group, a Narcotics Anonymous loner group, where you guys communicate by mail. (laughs) I I mean, I don't know. Maybe if you don't have access to email, maybe if you're in prison. (laughs) But in prison, there's other people in meetings usually. I I have no clue what this is, why they still Yeah, they should update that one because there's way easier ways now. Yeah, I I don't get it Is the image on the front like... Somebody with like the white t-shirt and leather jacket and like black slicked hair, like the loner. Why would I mean when we traveled, we realistically ran into that issue. So we were out in a part of Utah that did not have recovery meetings. There was I can't say did not. They had there were two AA meetings that were one was like a forty minute ride one way, and then the other one was fairly close. And there was like four people in each meeting and there were no NA meetings. And to get to a meeting other than that was like a two hour ride one way. Mm. But they had Wi-Fi. Yeah, but this was before like Zoom meetings were like a thing. Well, not really. Well, there was always in the rooms. In the rooms has been around for a while. And there were some. Oh, nine maybe. What's that? It's been around since like oh nine. Yeah. So there were a few uh other outlets and and there used to be like and of course now this would be really dated but there used to be like phone groups you could get on yeah like, i mean but even, <laughs> yeah, even different things you could do even when you're talking about not having groups nearby like you had fucking email and text messaging right like you could still stay in touch with people from the meetings if you didn't go every week yeah 
But I mean, for a person like me, that it was the personal connection piece. Like that's what I've learned for myself of what the attraction is to specifically Narcotics Anonymous. It is that interpersonal connection. And I don't know that I can't get that somewhere else, but that's where I feel it the most is in NA meetings. You need to write more letters to people, apparently. (laughs) Wait months for a reply. Bring it home, Jenny. How are we wrapping this up? Oh. Um... Don't isolate. Do, right. Yeah, don't do it. That's good. Um, did you know, so I read this this week um, in the New York Times about during 2020, alcohol-related deaths were up 25%. Ooh, isolation. And yeah, generally equated to isolation. It was um, people drank more to deal with stress. And then when you're home, uh, it's cheaper. So, you know, you you buy more. Mm-hmm. And um, like when you're out, a bartender would be like, hey, you've had enough, buddy. You know, like you don't get that at home. So then it was isolating and um, inability or reluctance to ask for help. So isolating with high stress and then limited access to treatment. Anyway, uh, the amount of alcohol-related deaths were almost tied with the amount of COVID deaths for those under 65. That's how big that number was. So I guess... To really bring it home. Yeah, and overdose if, deaths were up as well. Okay. Uh, overdose deaths were way up. And you kind of mentioned this in passing, but but like, yeah, the change to the ways we were able to seek treatment, right? Whether, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. not just talking about inpatient t- detox, we're talking like meetings. You're talking about yeah. Zoom meetings, right, Billy? Like th- that changed the way people interact and relate. And so how many people were stuck at home and didn't like Zoom meetings and and used again, right? Or drank again or whatever we want to call it. Or, you know, you didn't have those like similar outpatient groups that might be the follow-up to an inpatient detox, right? Where you can go three times a week and be a part of a group of people also doing what you're doing. So, so many more connections not available because of COVID, which, yeah, no, totally understandable and, and sad. I mean, nobody was addressing that during... Right. Right. Yeah. One of the things I had liked about the group I was attending is that we still met, you know, and we met outside and we had people coming from all over the place because we were still meeting in person. You know, people were coming from, you know, half hour, 40 minutes away just to be like, I want to be around people. (laughs) Yeah. We started the outside meeting, too, here for Recovery Dharma. You know, because I didn't I didn't do a single Zoom meeting during COVID. I just didn't, didn't. Well, I was with the kids for virtual school and like the last thing I want to do was get on another virtual meeting. Um, so then it wasn't too long. It was like summer 2020. We started the outdoor meeting. Yeah. Well, I've, and I've talked to a few people recently that are coming out of that now, like all they've done was virtual meetings for the last two years. And now they're like, oh, I feel so much better to get back in person around people, <laughs> you know, yeah. that they didn't realize what they, you know, they didn't realize they were suffering the way they were just because that's what they had been doing for two years. Yeah, but you're being a guy who attends in-person meetings only, you're never going to hear all the people who are like, oh, thank God I don't have to run back and forth to meetings anymore. Yeah, right. It was such a time suck <laughs> yeah. sit here and do it at home or while I wash the dishes. <laughs> yeah. so much easier. Right. Yeah, I actually, think there's both. I mean, oh yeah, I think there's definite need, and I think there are people that can get that connection from the meetings through the intimate conversation versus the intimate one-on-one connection. Yeah, there's so much like when you're in person, like there's so much like little non-verbal things that you get from sitting together. You know, um, there was a talk in the Buddhist community about like online Buddhism. Is it the same? Like meditating together online versus meditating together Hmm. in a circle. And they definitely the in-person 
you know, was much more preferred and enriching was the consensus. Well, I think with your meetings, stay in, in person during COVID, it was safe because you can't get COVID while you're meditating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we've that done... That is not a fact, people. <laughs> Don't fucking try that. We've done virtual interviews and online stuff, you know, with the podcast. I mean, do you feel like those conversations are the same or does it feel slightly different? The thing that pisses me off about virtual, um, and I still see clients in both formats right so i'm seeing people oh, yeah. online every day. and in person yeah. and i prefer in person because i am a guy that i hate to say that i interrupt people i, I like to make points at a, the right timing and i can't do that online because when you talk the other person's voice gets cut out and there's like and then i never know if they're done talking because of that slight delay it's that fucks me up the yeah. timing of conversation but in general i i mean i I feel pretty connected to the people I see online. It's good. And I think it's probably a skill. I mean, I think like most skills, we mm. learn and adapt. And if you yeah. do it more, you can develop it better. Yeah, I so agree. So we were just uh, an inpatient therapy place. Like nobody there really did online. And we had like 20 clinicians at the time. Probably 17 of them are never going back to in-person. <laughs> wow. Love it. Everybody yeah. seems to love it. All their clients love it. I'm like... I don't get it. I'm like, but it, it's huh. it's kind of wild how many. That seems so mechanical to me. Like I'll do like when I have meetings for school, I like doing them online, you know, because there's like there's like rules and order. But I can for something like that where there's like emotions involved. I see what you mean about having to interrupt or, you know, like pick up. Mm -hmm. But when it's just like like an IEP meeting for school, like you say something, I say something. That's fine. Mm -hmm. We could do that online. But when you have you need that organic flow. I'd rather be in person. And I yeah. think that's what therapy would be like. I definitely prefer in person, but it is what it is. All right. So back to it. Oh, um, so I guess, you know, it's, it's a sad irony that like, um, I drank because I felt alone and then that's exactly how I ended yeah. up. <laughs> Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So I guess, um, if there's any advice to part with, if you're starting to feel alone, you know, like act, you know, like reach out or I, I haven't, I'm luckily I have like a network of people I go to. Not everyone is, do I go to with everything? I think Billy, you were saying the same thing, like certain people I go to for this issue or, you know, and other people I go to for other issues. And so I had to kind of set up that network in my head. Actually, I journaled on it, like just to like, who are my people? And that way, if I do start feeling that aloneness, that's that isolation, I, I kind of have to like throw out a grappling hook and be like, pull myself out a little bit with this person. Um, so if, if you start to feel isolated, whether in recovery or you're just like a normie, um, reach out, you know. I've had to put situations in my life that are structured in so that I don't isolate. Um, you know, my job has been a piece of that. Like I have a lot of regular communication with my coworkers and we meet up and we talk about shit and I will ultimately end up talking about whatever shit I need to talk about there. I mean, we have this podcast, like in other periods of my recovery, it's been maybe a home group or, or something like that, but I need to have it scheduled in because just by default, I'm like, eh, feels good to sit home. I'll just do that. And, and so I need that connection as a structured calendar event or i won't do it any final thoughts no i like that's good information it's funny you said that i hadn't thought about that but i have to do the same thing i guess through home group and regular meetings with a sponsor and stuff like that i you know or else i'll isolate totally 
Yeah. All right. So try to seek out a place inside you that feels like you can choose to be together physically with people or connected and in solitude by yourself. Uh, and if you can't find that place, uh, seek out some help to find that, whether that's through a, some kind of support group or through, you know, professional therapy. Like, I, I think that is a space that exists and, you know, better than feeling isolated, whether you were physically alone or not. So have a good week. Uh, we will see you next week. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>